Okay, it's taking its time today. Okay, here we go. Hey guys, I'm Yuri Kroman. I'm the host of the Commander-in-Chief podcast. Today, I'm really, really excited to welcome a very special guest, Jennifer Dulski, the CEO of Rising Team. Now, of course, I want uh, Jennifer to do her own introduction, but I just want to mention that this is this is really a treat because there's so many different things. Um, Jennifer's experience, she's worked in several of the fan companies as an executive, and she's built startups as well. She's you know, a lecturer at Stanford. She's built nonprofits. Really an incredible wealth of experience and knowledge. And uh, it just so happens that Rising Team deals with learning and development, one of my favorite, very favorite subject. So not to steal your thunder, Jennifer, but please give us give us a little bit more of, uh, of your background. Sure. And you described it quite well. Thank you. So yeah, I think about my career as, as being in search of impact at greater and greater scale. So it's really all been about how can I try to make a positive difference in the world? It started, as you mentioned, by founding a nonprofit, which was about helping kids be the first in their families to go to college. That I I loved that job, but I just felt like it didn't scale the way I wanted to. Although the interesting thing about that is even though I ran it for four years and then I passed it off to someone else, next year will be the 30th anniversary. So it turns out things wow. do scale. Thousands and thousands of students have gone to college through that program. And then I've spent the next 20 plus years in tech, as you mentioned. I've I mm -hmm. spent 10 years at Yahoo. I've had executive roles at Yahoo and Google and Facebook. I've done two zero to one startups, one of which I sold to Google, and I helped scale change.org around the world from about 18 million users to almost 200 million. And now I'm building Rising Team. This feels to me like the company I have been meant to build my whole life because for me, the through line through all of those experiences has been teams. And I really feel like you can see clearly and the research says that when teams are operating at their best, organizations operate at their best. And I also believe that there are kind of two levers in people's lives where you can make significant impact on them. One is in their education and the other is in their work. So through Rising Team, we try to make teams more effective and also try to help people be more effective in their own growth and their own careers. Very cool. So, I mean, it's 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 not atypical, this conversation after, let's say, career in tech and there's, okay, maybe it's a question of legacy. Maybe it's a question of, okay, I'm, I'm tired of all that. I'm tired of all the bureaucracy and maybe, you know what, these guys are a little bit past their peak or what have you. We're not going to say which guys. <laughs> Silence of the lambs. But um, I think that it would be really helpful um, for me at least to maybe go, go back to maybe your origin stories, right? And I'm sure there's some very interesting one. So when you were growing up, um, you know, there must have been some sort of formative experiences that led you to look at the world maybe through the lenses of, okay, uh, there's groups, there is uh, impact, there's technology. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you, how did you come to kind of going down this path? Yeah, I think I have always been sort of teacher slash coach at heart. And if you look at my, my life, even growing up, you know, I was, a, I tutored, and taught art to young kids. I was an ESL tutor for ki kids who were new coming to San Francisco and didn't know English. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of in my high school career, I found rowing crew and I became a coxswain on the rowing team, which is actually 
I believe at the heart of all my love of leadership and my philosophy around mm. leadership, because, you know, coxswains, for people who don't know the sport very well, they're the people who steer the boat and develop the strategy and coach the team during the race, right? Because your coach mm -hmm. can be there in practice in a motorboat on the side, but in the race itself, they can't be. And so you need someone keeping the team on track, motivating people to work their hardest and really strategizing how to win. And th that early experience taught me so much that I brought into my career. And so then mm -hmm. through the rest of my career, it's really, as I said, been about how to scale. And for me, that's where tech comes in. And, you know, I was lucky to get in in the very early days of Yahoo. I was, I think, number 407 or something. And mm -hmm. you know, it just became quite clear that the way that you can create impact at massive scale is to do it through technology. And that's what we're spending most of my time on today. That makes a lot of sense. So one one uh, very simple, um, you know, you don't, you don't have to be uh, some kind of brilliant psychologist to realize the connection between that role. So you're sitting in the boat and you're, you're guiding actually with, with your back to the water, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, you're guiding a team over which you really you can motivate them, but you're not you're not rowing for them. <laughs> you, you can't apply electric shock. I mean, that would be humane. But in a way that leads very naturally toward doing product management. Right, because in that in that sense, you, you also you don't have all that much power. You're not you're not a developer. I mean, maybe you know, maybe you learn how to code, but you're not actually writing the code. So, and and you're kind of having to, uh, you know, to use a term, uh, finagle a bagel, right? You're having to uh, motivate them and show them, and then you know, you have to know all about technical debt and then all this all these kinds of things. And on the other hand, you have to work with marketers and. You know, salespeople and and UX designers. So that it's 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 really being in the middle of all these different people, rowing essentially in in very different directions. Yes, right? it's so true. And people ask me this question all the time. I get it. You know, having led large product teams, all the time I get questions: How do I work with engineers? How do I motivate engineers? Mm -hmm. It's not dissimilar, as you know, from also being a CEO, where you know you manage a general counsel or a CFO, but yet you're not an accountant and so forth. And yeah, the lesson I took from from crew is first, I mean, there's so many lessons. I have a whole article on this and on LinkedIn and in Fortune, but um, first is respect is earned, right? As you said, you're not, you know, I was not rowing the boat. And not only was I not rowing during the race, but I was pushing them to go harder than they really ever thought they could. And the question is why? Why, why would they listen to me? And the answer is because I earn their respect every moment. So every every moment out of the boat that we did a workout, I did it with them. I ran every sand dune. I ran up the parking lot in the snow. You know, I did all the hard work as much as I could, other than in the race. And then the other pieces, I I got to understand them each as individuals and what motivated them. And this is another lesson I take into my career every day, which is individuals are motivated by highly different things and also in highly different ways. So, you know, the example in the boat is if someone's, you know, or is not going in at the exact same time as everyone else, that will lose you a race. And you have to tell them and you have to tell them in real time and in front of everyone else, which is, you know, not always the way we advise to give constructive feedback. But I learned exactly how each person wanted to receive that feedback. So for some mm. people, they wanted it super directly. And I would say, mm -hmm. you've got to be faster. You're not on time, et cetera. And other people wanted a little bit of encouragement, like 
you're almost there just a tiny bit faster. And if you give those two people the feedback from the other, they will hate you <laughs> because it's just oh, not yes. what they want. And so mm -hmm. this translates, all of this translates so much into our day-to-day -day work lives. And in fact, for Rising Team, we've built a bunch of interactive exercises that can help managers get at exactly these kinds of things so that they can coach each person on their team as the unique individual they are. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned this kind of uh, individualized approach. It's something that I, I use a lot in my own work. It, it's, it's a well-known tool. It's called User's Guide to Self. Um, I think it was developed by Atlassian, but I'm, I'm sure many other companies have kind of run with it. I've made my own version. It's a very simple diagnostic tool. It can be a Google form. And you just ask people, hey, you know what? What's your preferred communication style? Or how do you prefer to be rewarded and recognized? Or, you know, how do you like to receive feedback? Exactly that, right? Or your areas for development? What do you want people to know about you? And I think, sadly, a lot of companies, they, they're, they're, and I don't know if it's American corporate culture or what have you, but it, it, it just, it, it's a lot of very kind of, you know, dancing on tiptoes or stepping on eggshells. I, I don't know. I'm afraid to offend someone. Just ask questions. Just yeah. And in fact, this is really the very premise behind Rising Team is that, you know, I, I knew as a manager, I needed to know all of this information about mm -hmm. each person on my team. And I knew as a leader that I needed to help my managers learn this about their teams and it was so hard, you know, most of the traditional leadership development, it, it's, I always say it's kind of like being taught how to fish and then being sent back to the lake with just the book. You know, you don't get any, <laughs> yes. it's like all really in your head. And so I ended yeah. up building like you did a bunch of these tools in Google docs and spreadsheets and so forth. But the hard part about that is you can't really aggregate the data. You can't trend it over time. You can't benchmark mm -hmm. it. And so this is exactly what we're building at Rising Team. Every kit covers one of these themes and has an interactive exercise that you can do with the team. We have a user manual. We have an appreciations profile. We have your talents. And so you can go through these exercises and get exactly that information and then have it for everyone on your team all aggregated together. Yeah. Now I want to make a, a quick contrast. I think this is a very, very interesting uh, uh, springboard for um, a couple other questions I have for you. So on the one hand, okay, let's 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 set this up. If you're talking about working in tech, any of the fan companies, right? You're dealing with some of the very best talent in the world, right? Whether that's on the executive level and you you know poach them out of government, it was the White House spokesman or woman. Uh, or, you know, press secretary or, you know, White House counsel. I mean, we, we know these things. It's not, it's not rocket science, right? At that level, you pretty much, you can have anyone for, for the right conditions. Okay, great. You're talking about the best kids coming out of the IVs of Stanford, et cetera. You know, again, of course, there's competition with the earlier startups, et cetera. But essentially, if you're talking about, okay, between five and 10 years ago, right, before a lot of this kind of tech hoopla and, and the regulatory fever before it rose, you have, you have your pick of the litter. So when you talk about managing people like that, again, I, I don't believe, I think most people don't believe that a manager is born. It's this magic aha moment. They come with a halo, yes, no. It, it's experience. Usually, you know, if, if you're relatively fresh, you might be lucky to have had one or two good managers. I mean, if you're if you're lucky or if you're well connected, or I, I don't know what. And you know, when you're managing young kids like that, I mean, you don't really have to think about managing the executives too much. Maybe just by other means. But the younger kids, 
when they're becoming managers, there's a lot of emotional intelligence often. It's, it's either like really zero, they're brilliant coders and they have no, like no sense of the outside world, or it's the extreme opposite. I mean, it's almost you know, manipulative kind of extremes. So managing um, in, in that situation might be very, very different from managing, I don't know, maybe much lower level talent that's not gone to Ivy's or maybe not gone to college at all. I use this example. Um, I worked in the home health industry, which is like, you know, in some ways the, the backwater of backwaters. You know, you talk about technology, this isn't tech, like forget, forget your fancy assessments, like just forget it. Or, you know, I had one, one episode, I think this is, you know, very illustrative. So I, I come in, I'm this bright-eyed, bushy-faced CHRO. It's my first gig. It's, you know, January 2020. Wow, look at that. I'm commuting three hours a day to this office in the middle of New Jersey. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm excited. I'm, I get to meet everybody and, and really motivate them. I'm a coach. I mean, that's, that's my thing. That's my bread and butter. And then, okay, I got this chance to be the head of HR. So I'm just going around one by one. Hey, I'm Yuri. You know, here's what I'm doing here. Like, help, help a brother out. You know, take your culture arm survey. It's not rocket science. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So they, you know, and, and one girl, I, I tell her, look, it's, it's anonymous. I see she's very kind of like, I don't know. It's anonymous. I swear to you. It's really, truly anonymous. This is not going to go to anybody in the company. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Look, come, come with me. I just did something like... Just you have to. Sometimes you have to move the needles. So come to my office. I'll show you what's on the back end. Okay. I showed her this is what Culture Ramp looks like. It's anonymized. She's broke down crying. It's like, wow, you, like you really you, you you never had anybody that you could trust at work. I mean, this is this is very drastic. So I just I just want to paint paint the picture, right? Because I think when you do a startup, you don't always have the pick of the litter, you don't always have the Facebooks and Yahoo's calling you. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But how how do you get beyond this kind of like cream of the crop, highly emotionally intelligent? They've had a lot of, I would say, grooming. In, the, in those companies, there's there are many, many different layers of support and benefits and HR and L&D. I just I, I want to set that picture. I think it's very, very important. So where's the first of us for the rest of us, if you will? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that I come from a place where I strongly believe in the potential of ah. everyone out there. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember my first job was starting a nonprofit that helped highly motivated, but really under-resourced middle school kids mm -hmm. get on a path to be the first in their families to go to college. And the truth is that without a little bit of extra support, they probably would not have been on that path. Mm -hmm. But with a little bit of extra support and the same level of high expectations as was mm -hmm. being given to people who had more resources, they were fully and completely capable of taking the same path. And so, you know, part of my philosophy starts with if we believe everyone has the same amount of potential, you know, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. It may yep. be true that people need extra resources and support. But what I don't want to do is give them a different level of expectation. So, you know, I agree with your premise. And I'll say, you know, when I got mm -hmm. to Facebook and Google, like, it's quite obvious that the team I had was entirely self-motivated, already capable. They needed less of my support. Yep. Um, but I don't think that they had generally higher capability and potential than people who did not have the opportunity to work there. 
And so that's part of why I'm building the product I'm building now is because I really believe every manager on earth has this potential. I mean, I will say not everyone is meant to be a manager. So there are no, some people sure. who don't have the natural talents that align with it in terms of loving to cultivate people and so forth. But everyone who has that kind of natural capacity, I believe, really has the opportunity to be outstanding with the right tools and support. And so, you know, as an example, even on our team, we've hired some really talented, senior, already capable people, right? My, our CTO is someone who came from my team at Facebook, you know, has an outstanding tech career, is, you know, really amazing. And we hired a few junior engineers right out of boot camp, right? They don't have a FANG background, et cetera, but they're high potential. They're really excited. They're passionate about our mission. And we give them a little bit of extra training and support. And then over mm -hmm. time, you know, I always say like by the time they work for our company for a few years, they should be qualified to work at any company on earth. That's my oh, Beautiful. Love it. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm coming from the same place, but I, I, it's very important for people to understand that because often it's like, well, those guys are privileged. It's not like that. Right. I mean, I, I myself, I, I, I don't know much about your background. I would love to go deeper into it, but you know, I, I myself, Okay, educated family, but we came with nothing to the U.S., right? Like just my mom was a scientist. My father was as well. And, you know, there's nobody who was like guiding, okay, here, here's what uh, it's like to go to college here or to save or totally thrown, thrown in the deep end. Good luck, buddy. You graduate from, uh, from Japan, you go to New York and, you know, you go have fun and take on crazy dad. You know, who, no, nobody thought twice. Here, my mom co-signed, you know, <laughs> here's a quarter million in law school debt. No problem. Enjoy. Like, <laughs> right. So a lot of these things, they're not, they're not around intelligence. They're not around emotional intelligence. They're around circumstances. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the time, I, I, I just, I wanted to bring another, another piece. I remember when, when I was at Penn, uh, I think there's a, a kind of a West Philly charter school where it's local West Philly kids who clearly don't grow up in any anything like those same conditions of, you know, a lot of pen kids that come from prep schools on both coasts. And, you know, they're coming from families of lawyers and financiers and doctors, very savvy people. You know, they have connections, they can get internships, right? And of course, this stuff has gotten even crazier and worse over the last 20 years. But the point is they put those kids in an environment where they're set up to succeed. Right. And the kids responded beautifully. Many of them went to Penn, they went to Ivy's, and they're perfectly successful like everybody else, right? Even despite maybe not having all the opportunity in the world, all and the. Sometimes because of it, right? So sometimes yeah. people like it's funny what, exactly. I, what I look for when I interview is something I call patterns of accomplishment, which mm -hmm. may not have anything to do with traditional education or jobs or anything. I, I look at actually my husband who grew up in a very blue collar family in Pittsburgh. You know, he has eight brothers and sisters and neither parent went to college. And he managed to get himself through college by putting himself, you know, going through the military, by having numerous jobs at the same time. And that is a pattern of accomplishment, right? It doesn't yeah. may not look like everyone else's, but um, you can see there are people who, who know how to, you know, and who will tackle any obstacle to, achieve what they you know what they're aiming for so let, let's go deeper i love this stuff right i mean growing up it's about books you know you read about uh who are some of the best authors it's people that are outsiders coming into the 
you know, the capital city and they're, they're digesting it every which way in, in ways that locals just, they, they don't see it, right? Or it's, it's people coming into an industry from a completely different place and they've got a chip on their shoulder and, you know, they're, they're 10 times as motivated as everyone else. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit more about what are those, what are those patterns? I think these are very, very important to, to talk about. So, you know, I wrote a whole book on this called Purposeful, um, which is about how each of us have the potential to start movements about the things that we care about. And I now can break this down into what I call the three C's. It's funny because I, I also think of my management philosophy as the three C's and they're different mm -hmm. things. But, um, you know, what I saw when I ran change.org for almost five years was that um, everyday people would do these absolutely extraordinary things. And they were the most unexpected people. They were children and grandparents and, you know, incarcerated people. And, and they would start the most incredible movements that mm -hmm. would mobilize mass numbers of people. And in a way, they were very similar to what I saw in startups, right? Of entrepreneurs starting their companies against all odds and so forth. And it comes down to three things, I think. The first is courage. Like, basically, you have to be willing to do something that you're not sure is going to work and that you think you might be criticized for. I, I sometimes yep. compare it to being like, you, you know, it's not enormous courage, though, because most of these things start with a small step. Like I'm going to read a book on X or I'm going to try, you know, signing up for one class on something. Mm -hmm. um, so a little bit of courage to take a small step towards the thing that you're trying to achieve. The second C here is community, which is people don't succeed by themselves, right? Whether it's starting yeah. a movement or you're pushing your own career forward or starting a, a company, you need people who are going to believe in your vision and support you, follow you, you know, be there alongside you. And the yep. key skill that people need to have is being willing to ask for help, right? Because if you're just there by yourself and you never ask, you won't get any help. And so mm -hmm. you need to ask, and then you need to really welcome and appreciate the people who join you. Uh, and the third C here is commitment, which is, things get hard. Like we know there are going to be a million obstacles and tons of criticism on the way to whatever you're trying to do here. And the people who succeed are basically the ones who just keep going. Like they get knocked down, they stand up again, they just keep going up the mountain. That's my analogy for it. Um, but that's what I see in terms of what actually works here. So courage, community, and commitment. Those are pretty, pretty big deals. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And I, I would strongly recommend uh, buying the book and reading it. Um, I think these patterns are really critical, whether you are a manager, you are a CEO or a leader, and, and you want to recognize those patterns, or perhaps, you know, you might want to look in the rearview mirror and realize, you know what, I've actually maybe been more courageous or I've had a better community than I thought. Yeah. Right? And these, these, these things are, are really paramount. I mean, success is almost a byproduct of of doing things long enough and, and again, getting up nine times after being knocked down eight, you know, and any of these sorts of analogies. So definitely appreciate you diagramming that for us a little bit. I'd love to still go back to maybe, you know, I, I, I know that athletics are, are definitely a big springboard for, for many leaders. It's not about tech or banking or anything else. It's, it's a really clear pipeline. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I'm not the world's greatest athlete, anything like that. Uh, played a little soccer, played a little basketball, nothing like uh, varsity or junior varsity. Just it wasn't part of my 
Like my mom was basically saying, no, 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 don't hit the ball with your head, a neuroscientist. <laughs> so uh, for me, I just, over time, I just noticed patterns. Okay, well, clearly a lot of athletes, you know, when, when they're, whether it's in college, whether they kind of get into banking and they see other athletes and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit, but there's a strong sense of community, a strong sense of commitment, right? So th these things are actually built into being an athlete. And again, yeah. you don't have to be at a professional sure. level. You don't have to be a professional athlete. I mean, I will say I was lucky to be able to compete at the you know collegiate level and partially, again, because I was coxswain and not a rower. But, you know, yeah. I was on a national championship winning college team. And um, it is there is something about people who are willing to put themselves in that situation where you do have to push yourself outside of your comfort zone and usually as part of a team that translates really well to leadership. And I know I said I have a second set of the three C's, but my, you know, when I think about leadership and management, I think about it a lot like coaches. I think the best managers are a lot like the best sports coaches and they mm -hmm. also do, do three things that happen to start with C. For me, it, there is coach, clarify and connect. So what mm -hmm. they really do is they, coach their team, right? Just like a coach would. You understand the unique talents, preferences, growth goals of each person, and you help them do their best for the team. So, you know, the example here, of course, is like you have a basketball team and you have one person who's great at three-pointers and another person who's great at rebounding. You might try to make them a little bit better at the other skill because they have to do it sometimes, but generally you don't. You try to help them be amazing at the thing that already comes naturally to them. And then yep. you understand that piece, as I was saying, about how they want feedback, where they want to go, and how can you help them get there. The second C is clarify here, which is how do I set a really clear vision for what winning looks like for our team? You know, what does winning look like? Exactly how are we going to get there? Who's doing what by when to make sure we're getting there? And the, the, the metaphor I love here is comes from a British crew team, actually, that they had not won an Olympic medal in a really long time. And they had this mantra they used called, will it make the boat go faster? And they basically said, we have one goal. We have a really clear vision, which is to win this Olympic medal. Everything we do, we're going to run it by that question. When we get up in the morning, what do we eat for breakfast? Will it make the boat go faster? How much do we train, et cetera? So that's the clarify C. And the, sec the third C here is connect, which is great coaches make their team feel like a team. You know, you want everybody to feel part of something bigger than themselves. And this, to be honest, is one of the hardest things right now as a manager or leader, because, you know, we're now at a place where 67% of all knowledge workers are remote or hybrid. Mm -hmm. And so making your team feel like a team when all you have at your disposal is like the Zoom happy hour is mm. really, really tough. And that's another thing we've been tackling at Rising Team is how do we give people these experiences where they can meaningfully build connection and growth instead of just trying to do like, you know, another virtual trivia night or things like that. So we're, yeah. we're working on trying to help people coach, clarify and connect for their teams. I'm going to give you a, an interesting image. Um, it seems totally disconnected, but I'll, I promise we're going to come back uh, to this question. So today I got, uh, you know, on my WhatsApp, my son had his uh, second birthday in his, uh, in his uh, kindergarten. 
And um, I don't know, for some reason, they dressed him up as king and he had, you know, a scepter and the, the teacher goes to the scepter and he <laughs> touches everyone on the head. Very funny stuff. For me, it recalled a, a very, um, I don't know what to call this experience. When I was, I think it must have been six, um, I was in the school play. Uh, back in the Soviet Union, uh, I, I don't even remember what the hell it was about. I don't think it was King Lear or anything like that, but something very serious and solemn, seemingly. And somehow they gave me the part of the king. So the, the one image I remember, the, I don't know, it was six. Um, I'm on stage. The, the first performance, the curtain goes up. I have the, the crown. I have the, the red velvet, whatever. I'm sitting on a chair without a back. And I totally froze. I forgot my lines. So as, as silly as it sounds, it's like, okay, haha, you were six. Who cares? It's something that's, that's always been in the back of my mind. Now, why? Because growing up, you know, I always heard this, oh, you're, you know, you're smart, you know, you're smart, you're smart, you're smart. It has paradoxically the wrong effect because, well, I'm smart. Like, I don't need to work that hard, right? So I'll just do the minimum. And like every, every new level where you go, it's the top 10% of the previous level, right? So you're going from high school where top 10% gets into Ivies, for example. Okay, you get to Ivies, it's the top 10% that go to grad school. And you just like, you know, you're, you're not used to working that hard and you're like the king on the, you know, on the backless chair and you're like, eh, what, what, what are my lines, right? So you learn, you learn to get better, not just, of course, work ethic and, and all that stuff, but you learn to get better at your lines. Because language can cover up <laughs> a lot of other things. Why did I mention this whole thing? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious. I ask every, every single guest there's usually some, you know, one or two or three experiences, something usually from childhood, I don't know. It doesn't have to be trauma. It doesn't have to be, I don't know, immigration or parents divorcing or God knows what. But sometimes it is something like that. It's something that an experience you had or, or something that you went through and it just kind of like really clarified things for you. Hmm. Care to share? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. My I'm not sure I have a childhood experience that comes to mind, but I definitely have early adulthood experiences that were highly clarifying mm -hmm. for me. And part of that is I think I have what I call test taker's memory, which is mm. really good at short-term memory, but I actually forget a lot of my own long-term memories. It's not great. Um, so for me, what comes to mind here is actually about perspective. Like it's very easy. I'm sort of on the opposite side of you, which is always working hard, always like I was, I always wanted to do the best and impress my teachers and so forth. So much so that I, I even did crazy things I never wanted to do. Like in college, I had this one professor who was really, really difficult. And I thought, oh, I got to impress him. And I worked so hard in his class that at the end of the class, he said, well, would you like to work in my lab? And I felt so honored that he asked me to work in his lab that I spent two years working in a lab for a geodendochronology where I was measuring tree rings, even though it had nothing to do with my major at all. So I would say I've had the opposite problem of like trying to do more than I probably needed to. Um, and what's helped bring me back is actually some life-changing moments that offered real perspective. So... You know, I think one story I tell sometimes, which is a little bit of a tough story to share, but I will try to share that here, is um, I was working at Yahoo. I was early, I was in my 20s, you know, I had just gotten a big promotion. Actually, I was probably in my early 30s. And I was so excited. I took my whole team up the 
you know, into the mountains to some winery for an offsite. And I was excited, but I was also really stressed. Someone had written me like a nasty email at work the night mm -hmm. before. And I was, I was just, my head was kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then I got a call from my daughter's school that she had been in a bad accident on the mm -hmm. playground at school. And they were basically rushing her to the hospital. And in that moment, it's one of those just life shaking moments. I could tell, like they actually put me on the phone with her and I could tell something was seriously wrong. And my whole team had gone up there together. So I had to put everybody back in the van and we rushed all together, together to the hospital. It was horrible. It was, she ended up in an induced coma in the ICU for a week. And yeah, it was awful. And we didn't know at that time if she was going to make it. And it just created so much perspective for me around the rest of my life. You know, yeah. all of a sudden, none of those little things mattered anymore. You know, the one nasty email, like who cares at all about the one nasty email and my promotion, like nice. But, you know, when people like you know, face major loss or lie on their own deathbeds, they do not say, I wish I had one more promotion or I wish I bought one more car, right? They exactly. say, did I spend enough time with the people that matter to me? Did I do anything that matters in the world? And so, you know, I was very, very lucky. She came out of that. It took a few months to recover. She's actually about to graduate from college this year. Um, Congratulations. Moments like that really just have shown me that you know, it, it's important to point my life at something that has real value for people and to also mm -hmm. not take the small stuff so seriously. Wow, it's, it's an incredible story. It's uh, uncanny, <laughs> very much of a parallel with, with what I went through when I was starting my, uh, my coaching company. I'd just been through three startups and I drank all the Kool-Aid and it was, it was terrible, just left on bad terms, uh, quote unquote friend from college anyway. Um, so two months into this business, uh, you know, my daughter was two months old and we went to the pediatrician. My wife was going to go to Morocco for a couple months with, with the girls. And I don't know, something just like, okay, go like, no, just don't, don't go to the pediatrician there, go here. And the pediatrician looks and she's like, there's a problem. Like, go, go to a specialist, something in the eye. What? Okay. The specialist looking 45. Uh, yeah, there's a problem. You better you better go immediately to Sloan Kettering. Oh my God, Sloan Kettering. Oh. Yeah, it was a three stage three B tumor, two month old, right? So we did fourteen rounds of chemo. Thank God she's fine. She just we just celebrated her uh, sixth birthday yesterday. Thank God, you know, like saved her life. Number one, saved her eye. I mean, incredible things happen, miracles. But exactly the same thing. I was I was what, like, what am I? What's my career? My I don't know what was my fourth, fifth career by that point. And it was like, whoa, okay, all right, enough. <laughs> enough of this wandering. Like, this is it. You're you're there. You know what you're working for. You know why you're here. So I, I very much appreciate that that kind of <laughs> – it's a stark perspective, but sometimes that's that's what it takes. Beautiful. Let me let me kind of uh, transition into the next uh, subject, and then I wanna I wanna start uh, wrapping up uh, with with the four four questions. <laughs> so the first, I want to ask you. I mean, okay, you're running a company that does leadership and development. You're training managers. Yeah. You're doing it for some of the best companies in the world. What's your people management philosophy? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, you've written 
a lot about this, but if you could maybe summarize it for us, what, what are certain uh, maybe most important principles? I think I, I already covered this a bit in the three C's. Yes. So that's, I mean, mm -hmm. that's the bulk of my philosophy is that great people managers are like great sports coaches. They really understand, sorry. Hopefully you're gonna edit this so you can get more okay. of that sound. Um, yeah. Anyway, great, great people managers are a lot like great sports coaches. They really understand each person and how to help them be successful and grow. And mm -hmm. they have clear vision for where they're going and they make their team feel like a team. And I do believe that, you know, anybody who has the natural capacity to cultivate people can be a great manager with the right tools and right support and can be a great leader. I also believe that it's not meant for everyone. And sometimes people who get promoted to management because they were great at their individual function aren't meant to be managers. And it's okay. Yeah. People can have, you know, amazing careers and never be a people manager. And we should help people find you know exciting paths on both sides of that journey yeah not everyone's meant to be an entrepreneur either right yeah you know, exactly just, that's for sure you don't need to go there if it's not for you yeah wonderful okay so the last part of this i ask every single guest as, uh, as i mentioned to you before we hit record um my book be your own commander-in-chief which by the way is going to be released in hardcover on may 12th please look out for that if you want to join the launch team you can uh, you can message me. We got that we got that happening. Um, every guest gets to hopefully answer a little bit about their life philosophy as it relates to four different questions. And the questions are, of course, number one about health. So it's uh, fitness, nutrition, sleep, anything that you can share with us. Again, we don't have to be LeBron James to take good care of our bodies. We don't have to spend a million dollars doing it either. Um, number two is mental models and life skills. The the way that we cognize who we are, how the world works, and how, to, how we deal with the world at large. Number three is dealing with other people. And of course, number four is the conversation that we have with God or the universe or whatever. Choose your flavor. Yeah. So what, what can you share with us from any of those well, four? Things, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'd start with the health piece, which, you know, for me is really important and always has been. I think maybe it's the athletics in my background, but I've always really loved um, being active and whether it's hiking in the mountains or my favorite uh, personal health thing for fitness is Orange Theory. I don't know. It's not in every part of the world, but um, mm -hmm. it's basically a system where you do different workouts and track your own heart rate. And I like it because it's competitive, but competitive with myself rather than, you know, I actually hate the leaderboards. I'm probably too competitive of a person mm. and I don't like competing <laughs> with other people in my fitness, but I like being able to say, can I get my heart rate in this zone? And, you know, how hard can I push myself? I also really like to have coaches. So I love classes where there's a coach, even if it's just, you know, something in my ear that I'm listening to on an app. Um, and I also try to do things like get enough sleep and I eat all plant-based diet, which I actually started doing because of my kids. I do intermittent fasting. So, you know, I've got a lot of stuff, I think partially because I enjoy my life and I want to be healthy and try to maximize the future of being here as long as I can. That's all about. And then on the mental models, um, you know, I think 
I have a few that I use. One, one is the element of perspective, which we talked about earlier. The second one is this concept of the, the mountain that I, I referenced briefly earlier, but I think of my life as kind of like climbing a mountain. And some days are super sunny and I have a picnic lunch and I can see the top and I know it's gonna be amazing. And some days are really awful. There's like a huge storm coming and I'm not sure I will ever make it to the top. And my view has been just to remind myself that both days will come. And it is true, I, like there is, it has never been an indefinite period of time on either the sunny side or the cloudy side. And so yep. my, my view has been, if I know what I'm climbing for, it helps. So purpose helps a lot. If I like who I'm climbing with, it helps. And then I use the Pat Summit quote, she's a famous women's basketball. Yep, yep, yep. Sadly lost a few years ago, um, she yep. says, left foot, right foot, breathe, like just keep going up the mountain. So that's been my mental model, left foot, right foot, breathe. Um, and I use one other thing I call, my family has used a lot of acronyms all through my life. So I have one, I, which is a horrible acronym, but I call it ICTICTA. It stands for, if I can do this, I can do anything. And basically yep. my philosophy has been, if something scares me, let me try to do something else that scares me more so that this thing seems less scary in comparison. And so I've done a lot of kind of crazy-ish things. I'm not a skydiver, but other other than that, I've done a bunch of crazy things to try to make other things in my life seem less scary. Um, that's that's a really good one. I want to make sure listeners listeners got that one. If I can do this, I can do anything. Yeah, and actually I can tell you the story where that came from because when I was a teenager, I went to this, my parents sent me to a camp for like delinquent children. I don't think I was a delinquent <laughs> child, but well, I, think I didn't they see that one coming. Okay. It would be <laughs> helpful to, to have these kind of resiliency skills. One of mm. the things that we did was this big ropes course, which ended with this um, kind of a bungee, not a bungee jump, but like a zip line off of a really tall cliff. And it had maybe a, what I felt was like a 20 foot drop. It was probably like a 10 foot drop, but everybody had gone off this cliff except for me and i was just standing at the top and they were yelling at the bottom come on come down and i really did not want to go and i thought i can just turn around and walk back the way i came and then i had this like in, inner monologue with myself that said do i really want to be the person that turns around and doesn't try this no matter how scared i am and that was the moment i had ictica if i can do this then I can do anything. And I it's funny because it's a literal jumping off a cliff story. So I yeah. did literally jump off the cliff. And then from then on, I've just, you know, I try to remind myself like the first day I was a CEO was a scary day, but I've done other things that were hard. The first day I walked into my first public company board meeting as a board member, you know, everybody has first days. And if we just remember that we can get through them, it's helpful. Left foot, right foot, breathe. Pretty right. basic stuff, but most people forget. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much. This has been a really, really incredible conversation. We've ranged all, all over the place about your personal story, about your people management philosophy. We touched a bit about your career uh, managing people in FANG, how you built a rising team, um, and your book as well. You know, you're, you're, really, you're really a model for, for many people. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. 
Um, and I certainly hope we get to have this conversation another time. It's been a true pleasure. Yeah, likewise. It's been a great pleasure for me. And I appreciate you having me on. And if people want to learn more about Rising Team, we think it can be helpful to so many teams. So they can come check it out at the website. That would be great. What is the website? Let's make sure we get that. .com, pretty easy to find. And I would personally love to do a demo for anyone who's interested. Beautiful. Yeah. So just, just a, a quick note, because again, this, this is maybe one of the very, very biggest areas where problems arise in any company, whether it's uh, fan companies, it's startups, management, especially new managers. It's, it's really a huge pain point. So if you haven't identified it yet, go and look for it <laughs> and then get rising team. You know, people are, you know, we know that half of all employees are thinking about quitting their jobs in the next three to six months. And that's largely yeah. because they don't feel valued by their managers and their companies. Mm -hmm. We can help people with that. So, and if you need help being a good manager, you also know where, where to look. Yeah. I'll Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great conversation. All Thanks. the best to you. Sincerely. You too. Thanks. Cheers.